Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading is from Luke 24, verses 13 to 35, and it's on page 1061 of the Church Bibles. That's Luke 24, verses 13 to 35. On the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, And how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly. Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Felicity, and um, good evening, everyone. It's very good to have you here tonight. What a joy to be able to gather together on this special day, Easter Sunday, and to rejoice in a risen Savior. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Luke 24. It's on page 1061, if you just close the church Bibles, uh, and let me pray as we look at God's Word together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for 
the kindness and gentleness of Jesus as he drew alongside those who struggled to believe that death is not the end. And I pray that the words that he spoke to them would help us tonight to believe just as they did all those years ago. And in his name we pray. Amen. James Stockdale was a prisoner of war in Vietnam back in the 1970s. And after seven brutal years of captivity, he was finally released. And some years later, he was asked about his fellow prisoners and about the kind of prisoner who didn't survive the experience. And he said this. The optimists, he replied. Oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. It is very hard to live without hope. Not just in a prisoner of war camp, but don't we all need hope to keep going? But where can we find a hope that never fails? Maybe some of us here tonight feel like we are in a story of hope. I don't know, maybe we're at the beginning of a new relationship that's exciting and bringing us joy. Maybe we're about to finish our studies and start a dream job and we can't wait. Maybe we're about to, to buy a new house. Or maybe we're just looking forward to a bank holiday Monday. Although apparently it's going to rain tomorrow, but never mind. But of course, none of, none of these things last. Maybe others of us have dragged ourselves here tonight because we feel much more like those prisoners of war. We've had our hearts broken again and again. Hopes raised. Hopes dashed through life. As we come to Luke 24, it's one of the great Bible stories. It's full of twists and turns, of, of confusion and irony. If this chapter was a pantomime, we'd be shouting, He's beside you! But at its heart... It's a story about a journey from deep despair to an unshakable hope. And Luke writes his account so that the people who weren't there on the first Easter Sunday, people like us in Sheffield 2,000 years later, so that we can go on that same journey. And so whether we've been a Christian for many years or this is our first time in a church building, let's look together at what happened to these two travelers and how it was that they moved from that place of deep despair to the kind of hope that even death itself cannot shake. As we dive in first, a bitter story, death and despair. Uh, those first few verses set the scene for us as Cleopas and his companion uh, walk home from Jerusalem. 
They're talking about Jesus and all that happened to him, including how he died on a Roman cross. But what they don't yet know is that the once dead Jesus is now alive again and is walking on the road beside them. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Think of that moment last September when the late Queen Elizabeth II died. My guess is many of us here tonight can remember the very moment when we heard the news. It's as if the whole nation just stopped. Every TV channel covering the story, church bells in every parish tolling out the mournful news. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who didn't know what had happened. That's the sense here on the road to Emmaus. And it's brilliant irony. (laughs) Of course Jesus knows. He knows more than anyone. It's all about him. So why can't these two travelers recognize Jesus, the man they're talking to? Luke doesn't tell us. But as the journey unfolds, surely at at least in part, it's because these two travelers are living with a narrative about life that death is the end. A few years ago, Lorna and I woke up one morning and we looked out the window and realized that our car was not parked in its normal spot outside the house. We began to discuss this issue together and we explored various options while the car wasn't there. Uh, We hadn't lent it to anyone. Uh, We hadn't taken it to the garage for work to be done on it. And we were both there in the room, so we, we weren't out with the car unbeknownst to the other. And the more and more we talked about it, the more we realized there was really only one explanation, which is that our car had been stolen in the night. And I remember for about 10 minutes sort of walking around the house just feeling sad. It was an old car. It wasn't worth much, but we'd had it for many years. It had served us well. And we were fond of the old thing. And so convinced was I by this narrative of theft that I forgot that the day before it was raining... And I'd driven up to church. And then after the evening service, the rain had stopped, and I just walked home. <laughs> Don't worry. I got there eventually. The car was safe and sound. And these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they will get there eventually too. But for now, can we see the power of the narrative we have in our minds? For them, this narrative that life ends with death is controlling how they see reality, how they're processing their circumstances. You see, they had great hope for Jesus. Verse 19, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. God hadn't spoken to his people for centuries. Just imagine the thrill of hearing Jesus teaching to the crowds, of seeing him perform mighty miracles. It would have been amazing to be there. Verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
In Jesus' day, the people languished under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. There was no freedom. Life was hard, little joy, uncertainty about the future. The people longed for God to send his Messiah to rescue them, to liberate them from the Romans, to bring about a new kingdom of life and joy and prosperity. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus was going to be that one, the Messiah. But then it all fell apart. Verse 20. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. And you see, if you live with a narrative of life that death is the end, then this is the end of all hope concerning Jesus, isn't it? And isn't this what death does? It comes crashing into our hopes and dreams and it ruins everything. No wonder these two were traveling home from Jerusalem downcast. For just a moment, they'd been teased by hope. And then hope was dashed by death. It is a bitter story. Before we go on, I I just want to say that the Bible understands the cruelty of death. The Bible understands how we too have hopes and dreams for a better future. We have plans and ideas and adventures lined up and experiences to share with the ones we love. And then death robs and destroys. And isn't this our problem with hope? We need hope, but at some point every story of hope is overtaken by the relentless pursuit of death, which always wins. It's partly why this account of these two travelers trudging home from Jerusalem, partly why it connects with our hearts and our experiences. We understand what it feels like to have our hopes raised and then our hopes dashed by death. But also this story speaks into our disappointments with Jesus. Perhaps we have decided to follow him tonight We've placed all our hopes and dreams for the future onto him. But then as we have sought to follow him, perhaps it feels like our lives have fallen apart. And we've cried out to him and we've prayed. And it feels like there's been no answer from the heavens and he feels absent from us. And we think, what good is it to put our hope in him? Maybe some here tonight who feel utterly disappointed, let down by our experience of Jesus. Again, the Bible understands. A bitter story. But the journey is not over. Next, a better story. Suffering than glory. Our culture tells us to believe only what we can see with lots of fake news around on social media, conspiracy theories abounding. There's some wisdom to that. Look around our world and only believe what we can see with our eyes. In part, it flows out of the enlightenment with that great emphasis on exploring our world and and testing and weighing and measuring things to discover truth. 
But what if there's a problem with our sight? What if there's a filter over our eyes so that when we look around the world, we don't see it as it really is? Perhaps some narrative shaping how we see. That seems to be what's happening here for these two travelers heading to Emmaus. They'd, they knew he was dead. And the narrative they have of life is that death is the end. So look at what Jesus does. He doesn't say, guys, it's me. Instead, verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, these are stern words. There's a, a sense of rebuke in these words, but they come with love and grace. The whole reason why this conversation is taking place is because the risen Lord Jesus has drawn alongside these two unbelieving travelers in order to help them with their unbelief. There's great encouragement for us tonight if we are struggling to believe. Jesus is kind and gentle with us. And the first thing he does is to set the narrative straight. Verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus absolutely is the great prophet sent from God. He is the redeemer who will rescue his people. He is the Messiah who will put everything right. But he has not come to do so by leading a powerful army or through some political movement or through the sheer weight of public opinion. No, he will do it. He has done it by suffering. The suffering of death on a Roman cross. And it had to be this way because the particular rescue mission he was on was so much greater than political freedom or economic prosperity. No, he had come to deliver his people from an even greater threat, from the threat of our sin and God's right anger at us for our sin. He suffered on the cross to die the death that we deserve, taking God's anger onto himself so that we might never have to experience that ourselves. And he was raised to new life to show us that his sacrifice had worked and that life beyond the grave is available to all who believe in him. The arc of this storyline is so much greater than these two travelers realized. And isn't that often the case for us as well? We want a Jesus who can help us to pass our exams and to sort out a new job for us, and to make us happy in our relationships, and to heal us when we're sick, and perhaps even to arrange a parking place for us when we're struggling. And don't mishear me, Jesus does help us now in the present in many wonderful ways. When we cry out to him in prayer, he hears us, and he acts on our behalf according to his love and wisdom. But most of all, Jesus has come to die for our sin and to secure our place in paradise beyond the grave 
where there is no more mourning or suffering or crying or pain. A better story, suffering than glory. If we're Christians here tonight, let's rejoice in this better story. Whatever happens to us in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, however long the Lord gives us, whether our stories are marked by joy or tears, by breakthroughs or heartbreaks, whatever happens, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are swept up into this great story of eternal life with Jesus forever. Well, perhaps we're still trying to work out what we make of Jesus. If that's us, then thank you for braving uh, the experience of joining us here tonight. As you consider Jesus, can I urge you not to do what so many people, I think, do in the world around us, who look at what happens in life and they see that when People die, they don't come back from the grave. And so they conclude that death is the end. And so that when they hear a claim that a dead Jesus has risen again, they simply reject the claim outright. Because it, it, it doesn't fit their narrative. Can I at least encourage you to look at the evidence that Luke gives us for a risen Jesus without discarding the evidence too quickly. Luke has already given us lots of evidence. This morning we looked at the first part of the chapter. We heard of the empty tomb of angels appearing and declaring the good news of Jesus raised from the dead. And here tonight, he gives us further crucial evidence. And here's our third point. A believable story the scriptures and Jesus. I think it's very tempting, isn't it, sat here tonight, 2,000 years after that first Easter Sunday, to wish that we'd been there. To think that if we had been there, and if we had seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus, then it would have been so much easier to believe that he'd been raised. But seeing Jesus was not enough for these two. Instead, look at what Jesus does for them and for us. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is so important for us 2,000 years later. What Jesus does for those two men, he doesn't say, it's me, it's Jesus. No, he takes them to the scriptures to persuade them of the events that had taken place, the very scriptures that we have before us tonight. He's talking about the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, containing 39 books written by dozens of human authors across many, many centuries. And yet Jesus is showing us that the Bible is really one great big book about one great big story that arcs through all the scriptures centered on Jesus, his suffering and his glory. Soon after Lord and I got married, uh, we bought a tent. And if you ever want to test the strength of your marriage, then try pitching a tent together. 
Uh, you know what it's like, you, you get this thing unfolded and um, you get the poles out. And uh, I've got some tent poles here. This, um, this set's slightly smaller than the one we had when we first got married, but you get to the canvas site, you know what it's like, and you just um, you dump the poles in the grounds. You probably can't see over there, but they're just an absolute mess, aren't they? Just like poles everywhere. And you, you, you look at this um, mess of poles, and of course, the person you're kind of working with has one particular view on how the poles fit together. Uh, there'll be other views around as well, and those two views have to be kind of worked through um, kindly, gently. Because with so many different poles, you could join them up in different ways, making different connections. You could have uh, many poles and one big long pole, or, or lots of smaller short poles joined together. There's like numerous combinations that could create numerous shapes of tents. Of course, only one solution is right. And I think... When we come to the Old Testament, we look at these 39 books, and it feels a bit like a spaghetti jumble of poles lying on the ground. We think, well, how can I make sense of this chaos? We can be overwhelmed. And different people can come to the Old Testament and put the books together in different ways and create different shapes and narratives and sizes and come up with different answers about what God is doing in the world and what the big flow of the scriptures are. And it can be very confusing. One of the great things about this particular um, set of poles that I've actually just broken slightly, but don't tell Lorna, is that um, it's come with, um, with some rope inside. Can you see that? And the great thing is that that little rope inside tells you at least the order that the poles go in. I won't do it all now. You get the point, don't you? Um, and if you like, I'm, I'm really working this illustration so it's Max. <laughs> just bear with me. Jesus is sewing these two travel companions, that there is a thread, a string that runs through the whole scripture that ties all the books, all the storylines together in the right order and in the right ways. And as the true, ultimate, final prophet, he's able to instruct these two people authoritatively about how to understand the scripture. There's one way, and it's all about Jesus. And it's all about that he would suffer first than glory. You might think, well, in, in what way does the Old Testament show us that great storyline? Well, very quickly, I think, I think two main ways. There are specific promises. Justin began our meeting with one of them from Isaiah 53 about how after he suffered, the servant would see the light of life. A clear, explicit promise of suffering than glory. But there are other ways. There are patterns as well as promises. You might know of the great Exodus narrative, the second book of the Bible, where God's people were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, groaning in slavery. And then God came and rescued his people with mighty acts into the promised land. And right at the heart of that rescue was a Passover lamb that died as a substitute and all those covered by the blood of the Lamb were protected from God's wrath as he passed through the lands. It's a brilliant story. It's a, a pattern that we find fulfilled in Christ, the true Passover Lamb, whose blood protects us fully and finally from God's wrath. And so as we look at these promises, Isaiah 53, for example, patterns, the Exodus pattern, as we piece these stories Promises together, we see this one great storyline about Jesus, how he would suffer and then be glorified.
And so as these two travelers are walking along the road to Emmaus, Jesus is doing a wonderful Bible study, isn't he? He's showing them how to understand the Old Testament, how to piece together all these different bits and pieces to understand what's happened. And 2,000 years later, we cannot see Jesus on the road that they did, but we have the scriptures to show us that the resurrection of Jesus was not some quickly made up plan in the spur of the moment to help explain a, a failed attempt to put him on the throne or to propagate a myth that would keep the disciples famous. No, it's an ancient story that began centuries before and has been finished in the days of these two travelers. And so for us tonight, if we're Christians here, just a quick thought about the Old Testament. We might be a bit daunted about the Old Testament and think, how can I possibly make sense of it? Or perhaps I don't really want to look at it. It's too complicated. But actually, I hope we can see that the Old Testament is crucial for us, that we have to work hard with Jesus as our ultimate guide to see how they point us to him such that our faith is built up in his death and resurrection. And it's partly also why here at Ford we, we, we preach the whole scriptures, including the Old Testament, because they all point to Jesus. It must have been an amazing Bible study on that road. Hearts were burning as they heard Jesus unpack the word. And now the scene is set. He's invited to a meal, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. What a moment. What a thrill. Luke doesn't tell us why it was at the very moment that bread was broken that their eyes were opened, although he stresses it again when the two recount what happened to them back in Jerusalem. These two, including Cleopas, they're not part of the 12 disciples, and so they weren't there at the Last Supper when Jesus broke the bread and explained the meal then. But perhaps they were part of the 5,000 that we read about being fed in Luke 8 when Jesus prayed and broke bread and fed them all. Or maybe as he broke the bread, they saw the scars in his hands and realized he was the one who'd been nailed to a cross Next Sunday, we'll see how important those scars are for belief. We don't know what it was in that moment that caused them to see. But I think taking a step back, how the story flows shows us that the groundwork had been laid as the scriptures were opened. And having done that Bible study, they were then in a place to be ready to see the once dead but now risen Jesus. So for us tonight, we, it's a believable story. We have the scriptures to show us this narrative. But Luke is also desperate to show us that the risen Jesus was seen. He, he's shown us how the tomb was empty, how the angels proclaimed the good news. But also he was seen. I come back next Sunday morning to see more of the evidence that we have in Luke's gospel uh, for those encounters with the resurrection Jesus. But I love how the story ends. These two dejected disciples turning around, rushing back to Jerusalem with the greatest news in the world. 
despair transformed into joy, full of hope. Not the kind of hope that breaks your heart. Not the kind of we'll be home by Christmas kind of hope. But a rock-solid hope built on historical facts of a dead Jesus who had been raised to life. And when this hope becomes our hope as well, surely we'll want to do what these two did and to rush out and to tell everyone. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for Jesus, for the way he understood our struggles to believe, the way he journeyed with these two, giving them just what they needed. I pray for us tonight that you'd help us to be strong in our confidence as we look at the scriptures, as we hear these accounts of a Christ who first suffered, then was glorified. Give us great confidence in the hope that we have in him that one day we'll be with him in paradise. And in his name we pray. Amen.